0: Welcome to The Collective Tap, conversations about water. I'm your host, Taylor Bennett. Season two of The Collective Tap is called Well to Table. It focuses on the role that water plays in the production of food and beverages in Indiana, everything from the field to the bottle. Join us as our field hosts Taz Walters and Devin Dabney, bring you conversations with the agricultural community in Indiana, commercial producers like Coca-Cola Consolidated, and Ingredient. And the people behind some of our homegrown beer and spirits. In part one of this two-part episode, we talk with Jordan Sager, deputy director of the Indiana State Department of Agriculture, Dr. Keith Cherkauer, and Dr. Laura Bowling of Purdue University. We discuss the role water plays in agriculture operations and how farming practices are impacted by and adapting to climate change. First, let's meet Taz and Devin. Hi, I'm Taz Walters, one of the Collective Taps non-water
1: expert hosts. Just like you, I have lots of questions about our water.
2: And I'm Devin Dapney. I'm also new to the world of water, but I'm here to help ask the questions you might want answered.
0: Our first conversation is with Jordan Sager, the Deputy Director of the Indiana State Department of Agriculture. Jordan talks about how conventional farming practices impact water resources, the innovative practices gaining traction today, and how they are proving it's possible to grow crops and protect water quality
3: name's Jordan Sager. I'm the deputy director for the Indiana State Department of Agriculture.
2: Would you mind just briefly explaining what that department
3: does? Uh, so the State Department of Agriculture in, in Indiana really has six uh, major focus areas. Policy, uh, both state and national. Uh, communications, work a lot with media, social media. Uh, we have an uh, FFA division, so kind of think uh, ag leadership and leadership in general at the high school level. We have uh, a grain regulatory division, which works with feed mills and elevators and ethanol plants around the state uh, and in turn, protects farmers. Uh, and we have a division of soil conservation, uh, which is, I think, most relevant to our discussion today. And uh, a key point there is our division of soil conservation is actually the largest division uh, by far with, within the department. We would also uh, have an economic development mission area that works on really uh, kind of think business attraction and expansion.
2: Pretty much everyone knows that agriculture requires water, you know, to grow plants, but um, I think the relationship between agriculture and water is a little bit deeper than just growing plants. Could you kind of explain the relationship or talk about the relationship between agriculture and water? Absolutely,
3: yeah, and, and as we know, we, uh, water feeds life, right? With, without, there is no life, whether that's, that's human, animal, or plant. And that comes down to quantity and quality, right? Um, we thankfully, in, in Indiana, in the Midwest, especially the Great Lakes states, uh, are blessed with, with a significant water resource, uh, both surface water and groundwater, kind of think aquifers and that sort of thing. In some cases, uh, we have too much water. Uh, We get into floods and that sort of thing. So it becomes actually how we drain our our land uh, to be able to grow crops so they don't flood out. Quantity, extremely important. Um, And then on on the quality side, uh, we, plants, animals, humans, all need good, safe uh, water, whether that's to grow crops or to drink or or feed animals. Uh, There's definitely... Uh, challenges on on both those sides, right? On quantity, too much, too less. Um, on the quality side, uh, a big challenge is nutrient pollution. And thankfully, we've cleaned up uh, since the Clean Water Act in the 1970s. A lot of uh, those those big time pollutants, heavy metals, and that sort of thing. Uh, and you know, today our challenge really comes down to nutrients nitrogen, phosphorus specifically. Uh, those nutrients are good things, right? We need those for life too, to sustain, but in excess quantities, when they run off, um, whether that's from human wastewater or from, from crops uh, being fertilized or from animals, excess nutrients cause challenges. Uh, and the two major ones are harmful algal blooms. You sometimes hear about those in lakes, especially in summer. Um, not good for dogs or swimmers, that sort of thing, but they can also create algal blooms that uh, create hypoxic uh, areas, uh, whether that be in the Great Lakes or or the Gulf of Mexico. So um, quality, quantity, a big deal, and and challenges remain in both.
1: Can you talk a little bit about what conventional practices look like um, as far as water usage and nutrient practices? What are farmers traditionally doing with those resources?
3: Uh, In Indiana, 83%. Of, of the land in Indiana is in private farms and forests. You, you know, from, from my end, if you're gonna go have an impact on the water resource, the air resource, wildlife resource, you gotta go work on that 83%. You gotta go work with private landowners. Uh, most of those are, are in business, right? They're, they're growing hardwood trees or they're growing livestock or, or row crops. So uh, they, they've gotta make a living uh, on that land, right? To continue. Uh, so that's kind of big picture. Um, in, in specific to conventional practices, um, we we grow a lot of corn and soybeans here. Uh, we also have a, a lot of livestock, uh, poultry, pork, beef, uh, dairy, uh, being being the big ones. And you know, on the row crop side, uh, traditional conventional practices have used a lot of tillage over the years. Um, there is fertilizer that's added uh, to those fields to grow a crop. You know, we've we've tried to um, learn, work with landowners on how to do things maybe different, maybe better from what we've done in the past. And that's where we get into soil health and these conservation practices that are replacing some of those more conventional methods. Um, we talk about reduced tillage and no-till and things like cover crops we might talk more about, but, you know, conventional practices... Uh, 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 definitely a standard way of doing things, but I would say Indiana especially has been a leader on on how to improve those conventional methods as we learn more, uh, as we get better tools and technology and uh, precision agriculture, which spoon feeds, nutrients, fertilizer exactly to the crop, just the right amount, what we need. So it's exciting and and we're making a a lot of headway and, and positive trends to improve a lot of those conventional methods here in the state.
1: There was a recent Indianapolis Star article that talked about Indiana's poor quality. This was in uh, March of 2022, in terms of talking about Indiana topping the list of states with the most dirty waterways. And Mm -hmm. the biggest things in there were E. coli from animal manure, as well as nutrients Mm -hmm. from agricultural runoff. What can be done about that? And is there a sense of urgency from farmers recognizing that it's a problem?
3: Yeah, and exactly right, Taz, that we've come a long way, uh, but we still have challenges, right, that that we're focused on. Um, Specific to the article you mentioned, uh, I guess two key points that that I would throw out. Um, One, we're sampling more water than than a lot of other states. Uh, When you're sampling water, you find more things, right? Um, But we've said we're not going to ignore the challenge, right? We're not going to ignore the problem. We're going to go look and and target our resources to improve things. Uh, Number two, we are the largest manufacturing state per capita. Uh, We are the largest steel manufacturing state in the country by far. Uh, We make things and we grow things here, which then uh, support the, the rest of the country and quite frankly, support the rest of the world. Uh, There's trade-offs to to manufacturing, there's trade-offs to ag, no doubt. Um, And that can uh, come at the detriment and sometimes to water quality. What we're doing uh, to try to overcome uh, those challenges, and you mentioned E. coli specifically, I guess I can address that. E. coli for both animals uh, and humans. Sometimes when when E. coli is found in water, uh, there's groups that automatically say, well, that must be agriculture, right? Uh, a lot of cases, there's not DNA sequencing that's been done. Uh, agriculture is actually working more on that. It's been interesting to find a lot of cases that's more human-based uh, E. coli than, than animals. The city in Indianapolis we're sitting in today, uh, when we get over uh, about a half inch of rain, quarter inch of rain, uh, traditionally, that has overwhelmed our wastewater treatment plants. Uh, and the, the gates open up on the White River. Uh, after those storm events, because the the, the wastewater treatment infrastructure is just not grown alongside the city's growth and and the road pavement impervious surfaces, that sort of thing. So, thankfully, the the city is invested heavily uh, about a two billion dollar project and in, in a deep tunnel project. Amazing project, right, that basically acts as a sponge, if you will. When we get those storm events, uh, that water will then be stored underground and slow fed back into the wastewater treatment plant. We still have many, many cities uh, that, that release raw sewage. Um, into our waterways after rain events, uh, crazy enough, but that is being addressed, especially in the the large cities. Uh, On the ag side, really what we're focused on is the soil health side of things, uh, using cover crops, uh, minimizing tillage, um, using sound nutrient management practices, especially with organic uh, nutrients, that would be animal manure, Uh, only about 4% of, of the Indiana ag acres on a given year actually have manure applied. Um, it's an organic source, a fertilizer, right? It's not coming from a mine. It's not coming from natural gas. Uh, so it is sought after. And um, by all means, farmers want to use manure. It can help build organic matter. It can help really actually with soil health when applied correctly. Uh, so it's a valuable commodity. Um, But it it needs to be applied correctly, and that's where some of these precision technologies which are injecting manure in the right spot at the right time, using cover crops maybe as a sponge to soak up those nutrients from the manure when it's applied, uh, are a lot of things that that we're promoting and that uh, Hoosier landowners are utilizing.
2: You you mentioned a few practices like cover crops, and um, yeah, I would just love to hear more about those practices and how they can make soil healthier.
3: Uh, talk about conservation, we talk about sustainability, um, you know, biodiversity, regenerative ag, there's a lot of these terms, right? Um, many uh, are synonymous with one another. Um, soil health is, is really kind of what what we talk about when we talk about sustainable agriculture, that's, that's where the rubber meets the road. Um, the key principle of soil health is, is minimi- minimizing disturbance, so reducing tillage. I can talk more about that. Uh, Keeping it covered, keeping the the land covered, that's cover crops. Uh, Maximizing biodiversity, so that's looking at crop rotations and maximizing continuous living roots in the soil, kind of trying to mimic mother nature. Again, going back to cover crops. And and the best way I can describe this is, uh, we landowners, farmers have a pretty good handle on the physical properties and, and chemical properties of what's going on in their fields, right? What we're really just starting to wrap our heads around, you know, probably since about 2010 is this idea of soil health, which is the biological side, right? That, that complements the chemical and physical. It's really trying to mimic Mother Nature the best we can. A big thing of that is, is trying to uh, reduce tillage. Uh, no till is something we talk about quite a bit. Um, so that's the extreme. Uh, conservation tillage or strip tillage is kind of the, the middle ground. Uh, but that's basically letting the bugs and critters kind of do their own thing. Conventional farming, uh, y- you, you plant your crop in spring, right? You harvest in the fall. And then conventionally, that field lays fallow or bare soil, bare dirt, all the way from late fall through winter until planting, right, in the spring. Well, think about it. Um, there's not much living out there, you know, earthworms, and all the microorganisms, microscopic stuff um, isn't really thriving because there's not really food, just bare soil. Uh, we get a large rain event. Well, there's no protection, erosion, right? Uh, and any uh, fertilizer or manure that might be in that soil, if you get a large rain event with with no uh, cover, it can run off as well, right? So the idea of a cover crop is is a, a green bridge uh, to span that uh, conventional brown gap, if you will. Farmers don't harvest that cover crop. It's not a cash crop. They don't bring it to market. Uh, but but essentially, a cover crop. Uh, is planted uh, during or after harvest. Sometimes it's flown on even with planes uh, before harvest. And it creates a green bridge of living cover, of soil armor, if you will, of food for those microorganisms and even other wildlife that actually grows all the way through spring. Uh, And then it's it's killed in in a few different ways. Uh, And then the cash crop is planted. Indiana uh, this last uh, fall, winter had about 1.5 million acres of of living green covers, we call them, um, that's protecting soil. Um, That puts us about number two or three uh, in the nation uh, for acres of cover crops, which we're pretty proud of. And we've seen that number increase dramatically. Uh, We've actually seen cover crops since 2011, uh, use of cover crops and acreage increase about 360%. Are there any
2: edge of field slash like buffer applications that we can do or
3: that are done to protect water? Yeah, absolutely. Good question. So the soil health practices I just talked about, tillage and uh, cover crops and and precision application of nutrients, those would be more whole field practices, right? And that's a, a, a key strategy that we have, but complementing those whole field practices or what we would refer to as edge of field practices. And these would be filter strips, right, between a corner soybean field and in a stream or a river. Uh, These would be wetlands uh, that's maybe taking the drainage and treating drainage that's coming off a a waterway. And there's some different uh, technologies that are, are treating tile water, actually, as it comes off the field before it's released Um, into a waterway. So edge of field practices um, are are very important. There's grassed waterways would be another example. And and we use them all. Uh, There's many tools in the toolbox. uh, And and really the right approach, the approach that that we try to work with landowners on is a systems approach, right? It's a combination of edge of field and infield practices where we really get the biggest bang for buck where we can keep nutrients and soil uh, on the field for the crops and, and out of our waterways.
2: So all of these practices sound awesome. They all make sense the way you're describing them, but I know how hard it is to get some, something like knowledge or an application and get people to do it and get people educated about it. Who's involved in, in sharing these practices
3: and getting farmers to adopt them? Yeah. Great question. So in Indiana, we're very thankful that we would have a a collaboration, a partnership that we formally call the Indiana Conservation Partnership. So it's a group of of local, state, and federal um, uh, departments, agencies that all have some um, play in in the conservation or agriculture space. Some of your listeners uh, may be familiar with their local county water Conservation District. Uh, That's kind of where it starts on the ground. Um, With the State Department of Agriculture, we work with the State Department of Natural Resources. Uh, On the federal side, there's the Natural Resource Conservation Service, uh, which really brings a lot of federal conservation dollars from the Farm Bill or other policies that you might uh, be familiar with into the state. So we're very thankful that that we all work very closely together uh, within this conservation partnership in Indiana. Now also outside of that formal partnership, we've got groups like the White River Alliance, like the Nature Conservancy and other uh, nonprofit groups that uh, have more boots on the ground and are engaged with us and something we're very, very proud of here in the state. You mentioned, if I can, kind of it's tough uh, for the change and how you get this word out. And you're saying, well, Jordan, cover crops, all this stuff sounds so good, right? Why aren't we doing this everywhere? Um, change is tough, right? The, the biggest example I could share is for a farmer, if you're raising crops or raising up you know, animals, you might only have 40 chances at that. Uh, You do what works, you do what what you've got knowledge of. And as these new technologies or practices come into play, that can be tough to ship the whole operation over. There's risk associated with change, right? Uh, But especially when you're running an operation, a farm operation, that uh, if you make some bad decisions, you could make or break the farm. Um, So change is difficult, and that's where a a lot of our um, techniques start small right Uh, we're not saying turn the whole farm over to cover crops you know don't take your five thousand acres overnight and 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 bring it in to to cover crops it's hey do you have a hundred acre field do you have a 40 acre somewhere maybe that your neighbors you know can't see driving past that that we can experiment and take some risk out of trying something new you know i would also say that the soil health practices the things what we're talking about take more management uh, it takes a more meticulous farmer to do these things. They are not easy. There is a return on investment from doing it, but in some cases it takes uh, an upfront investment. Maybe you've got to buy a brand new planter, a corn or soybean planter that, that works with no-till. That can be hundreds of thousands of dollars these days. Um, there's a financial risk to that. To plant cover crops, that's a whole nother uh, field exercise in a very busy time of year. Right? There's a very small window typically, and weather can really mess with that to get a crop out, uh, get it in the bins, um, to plant a crop, uh, dealing with rain and, and soil conditions. So um, adding you know these, these extra operations in, into a farm uh, can be tough. It, it takes a more meticulous manager, a more meticulous farmer to incorporate uh, a lot of these conservation methods we're talking about.
1: In this conversation, I think I felt a little bit of the tension sometimes between what farmers need to be successful and what we as a human population need to have clean water to drink. And I think sometimes that can feel like a really adversarial relationship. How do we bridge that gap?
3: It, yeah, great question. And, and no doubt um, that there's a tension. I would say it doesn't have to be one or the other. It doesn't have to be food or you know clean water. Uh, the things that we've talked about here with conservation, with soil health, uh, can help meet both those needs, right? And I, I think landowners here in the state are proving that, that you can continue to grow high yielding uh, crops and, and do it in a way that's not detrimental to, to water quality. Um, and you, you do that by incorporating some of these soil health measures. Um, and, you know, there's there's many, thankfully, conservation leaders in the state that, that are on the, the leading edge of trying even new things that we've not touched on today that can help bridge that gap.
0: Next, Dr. Keith Cherkauer is an associate professor of agricultural, biological, environmental, and ecological engineering at Purdue University. Dr. Laura Bowling, also at Purdue University, is a professor of watershed hydrology, hydroclimatology, and GIS and remote sensing. She is also the director of the Natural Resources and Environmental Science Program. Drs. Cherk, and Bowling discuss how climate change is impacting Indiana's weather patterns and what that means for the future of agriculture.
4: I'm Dr. Laura Bowling. I'm a professor in agronomy at Purdue University, and I'm also the director of the Natural Resources and Environmental Science Program.
5: I'm Dr. Keith Turkauer. I am a professor in agricultural and biological engineering.
2: We'll start with a big question first. <laughs> How does agriculture interact with water in Indiana?
4: How doesn't agriculture <laughs> interact with water? I'd say um, there's probably no other sector of the economy that is more tightly interlinked. You can't grow plants without water. Um, our single biggest use of water is the water that passes through plants and goes back to the atmosphere as transpiration. So any agriculture, not just in Indiana, is going to interact with the water cycle in a very intimate fashion. But in Indiana, um, we do have you know pronounced seasonality. And so Even traditionally, we have um, excess water stress in the spring where we have a lot of drainage infrastructure in the state to try to remove that excess water so that we're able to grow crops. And that's both through buried subsurface drains and excavated agricultural ditches. But then in most years, we have significant drying over the course of the growing season, and so then we have drought stress by later in the season. Um, where crops would benefit from a little bit of additional water. Certainly, traditionally, we've been able to to grow crops as rain-fed agriculture, and for the most part, that's continuing into the future.
1: So you have both problems of too much water and not enough water, it sounds like. (laughs) Absolutely. Okay. Um, How is Indiana's climate changing with respect to our historic water patterns?
5: Historically, Indiana has been getting wetter the last... Thirty or so years, and that trend is projected to continue into the future. Most of that excess precipitation is falling more, and is falling in the winter and the spring. Looking forward, the summer is a little harder to project. Some models say we get more precipitation in the summer. Some say about the same. Uh, but with the increased transpiration that we expect, given the higher temperatures, we expect that water water deficits are going to get bigger more drought, more impacts. So even though we're going to have a net overall higher
2: precipitation, it still may even provide more strain on agriculture just because we won't have water when we need it.
5: That's certainly an infrastructure issue, right? Laura mentioned that Indiana um, reliance on subsurface and surface drainage networks and we are adding more of those to deal with these wetter springs. Again, a lot of things got delayed this year again, but looking forward, if we drain all of the water that we have in the spring, it's not there in the summer. And so we are starting to explore ways to save more water in the landscape.
1: When we're talking about a lot of water, I think one thing we had heard about from one of our other guests is what ends up in the water from agricultural practices. Can you talk about that?
4: I'm most familiar with um, nutrients coming off of agricultural land, so I can't talk as much about some of our concerns about emerging contaminants and things like that that are more associated with land-applied waste or land-applied manure, things like that. Traditional row crop agriculture, where we're um, applying fertilizers for the crops to grow, it's a very leaky system, and so... um, a significant proportion of the fertilizers that we apply are going to flow with the water out of the system. In particular, in Indiana, we have focused a lot of our effort in our research exploring the issue of nitrate losses from agricultural lands. And that's because we have so many subsurface drainage practices. And that, that practice of encouraging water to flow through the soil and out the bottom of the soil through these perforated pipes tends to flush the dissolved nutrients out of the system. Originally, subsurface drainage was put into place as a conservation practice to help reduce overland flow. And so we tended to get less sediment in our water bodies and less... of the chemicals that are stuck to the sediment, things like phosphorus, total phosphorus. Um, And so it did have a water quality benefit. And then we sort of realized, like, oh, there's this unintended consequence, and we're getting a lot of nitrate out the bottom. And more and more, um, there's also concern about dissolved phosphorus in some of these systems as well.
1: How are farmers adapting to climate changes and to new information?
4: There are a lot of different adaptations, and of course it's sort of a continuum, right, where where some are adapting more and others are going to be slower to adapt. Certainly, I think the, the soil health initiatives that have been being pushed by USDA and others are definitely catching on as something that just makes a lot of inherent sense to farmers. Um, about keeping more of the organic matter on the land and improving soil structure so that you can encourage infiltration and things like that. It's a slow process, but I think it's not a hard sell to farmers because it does um, make sense with what they see on their own land. And many farmers are experiencing the impacts of increased precipitation intensity. They might not put it in those words, but they know that they are seeing um, these flooding events and ponding events on their fields that they haven't seen in the past. Cover crops are also becoming, um, our our area of cover crops keeps expanding in the state and that is tied tightly to those soil health initiatives. I've read a little bit about combine producer, like
1: manufacturers making like bigger and faster combines because farmers' harvest windows are getting smaller. Um, So you need to like get it out of there faster. Um, Can you talk about those types of changes?
5: Well, since you're talking technology, I will point out I was driving across the state earlier in the week and the number of people out there with tractors with tracks as opposed to wheels was impressive. And the track systems provide, they redistribute the weight of the tractor so it reduces compaction but also allows them to get out into fields that are wetter. So that is certainly a place where I have seen investment in that. I think historically we have done more with equipment getting larger and larger so that we can do, so we can plant more rows of crop at the same time and and fertilize and spray and everything else all at the same time. But I think there is a driving push to moving back towards smaller systems because those big ones are heavy compact the soil. They get stuck in the soil. So your window when it's wet in the spring and you're trying to get in between this rainstorm and the next rainstorm gets smaller. So I think we are starting to see some smaller systems. right There's also been a big push for systems with more control. Precision agriculture would be the, the traditional name of that. And so that is looking at, you know, if we have this system driving across and we know more about what the soils how the soils vary across the field, what the topography differences are. Can we change the seeding rate? Can we change the fertilizer rate? So that technology is getting out into the hands of the farmers, but we don't have a a solid base of research to understand how they should use that. Do you put more fertilizer in the places that gave you good yields in the past Mm -hmm. and make those better, or do you put more fertilizer in the places that gave you poor yields in the past to bump it up? We don't know. Mm We don't know what seeding rates should go where. Mm -hmm. So all of these things are are kind of coming together, right? There's a lot more technology involved in farming, but we are still figuring out how to make that work to our advantage to kind of maintain or improve yields given the increased variability in climate.
1: What are farmers doing to like mitigate what ends up in the water? I mean, obviously farmers care about water. Mm -hmm. What are they doing to kind of lessen their impact on the watershed?
4: Some of the things we've already talked about can help with water quality. I think for the most part, they're probably not thinking about these more subtle changes to the hydrology, right? The fact that water might be draining off of their land more quickly, and that means that you could have more flooding downstream. Although I was at... um, a meeting with a group of farmers earlier this semester that was um, talking about a, a grassroots effort to address climate change impacts. And so one of the farmers in the room was a downstream landowner. So he was very aware of how drainage practices upstream of his farm were influencing flooding on his field. So I wouldn't say that there is no knowledge of that connection. But things like the soil health initiatives, the cover crops, definitely um, helping to trap more nutrients. And there's an incentive for farmers to do that, right? They don't want to spend more money than they need to on fertilizers and overapply. Um, of course, they don't want to limit their yields, right? They, they do need to cover costs. And so it's that constant balancing act of I need to make sure that I'm applying enough fertilizer, that I'm going to reach my yield potential, but then trying to hold more of the nutrients in the soil using cover crops to hold them in place over the winter and then have those nutrients become available to the crop in the following spring.
1: We've talked a lot about like, the future of water availability. What do you see for Indiana farmers in terms of water in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years?
4: More of what we've seen in the past, but just more extreme in terms of um, more excess water in the spring. And so greater stress on our current drainage infrastructure. And so um, farmers will be interested in getting that water off their fields as quickly as possible because that's what's delaying the timing of planting. We already have like our our built drainage infrastructure in many locations is already overloaded. And so there's interest in expanding that, dredging more drainage ditches, putting in more tile, but then from an ecosystem perspective that has a lot of risk for things like downstream flooding, right? That we're just funneling huge volumes of water downstream very quickly and that that's gonna have negative implications downstream. And so um, trying to manage this excess water in the spring is a very big challenge going forward. And I'd say the farmers probably have even more incentive to try to get into the fields early because a lot of the stress for for future farming operations is excess heat stress in the middle of the summer and trying to sort of desynchronize the time period where you have the most heat stress with when pollination is occurring in the crop. And so playing with that um, timing of when the crop is planted so that you can avoid that maximum heat stress Of course, the the increased need for supplemental irrigation later in the growing season because of the hot conditions and not only water needs for the plants, but also it is a method. It can help with temperature control as well, having that excess water or additional water applied. When we looked at the numbers, you know, it completely depends on whether or not it's worth it for a farmer to invest in irrigation infrastructure. Depends on current commodity prices and so when we looked at it a few years ago even with sort of future water needs for the most part on average it didn't look like irrigation would pay for itself so we didn't sort of project a huge increase in irrigation across sort of all of our corn and soybean acres but I think we would continue to see growth in irrigation.
2: Can you talk a little bit more about how these changes in climate and farming practices might affect farming in terms of state economy?
4: From looking at um, you know some of the projected climate impacts to agriculture in Indiana, there's still a lot of productivity in the state, right? We are not talking about the end of agriculture in Indiana. Agriculture is still going to be continue to be a major portion of um, our economy. It comes with increased risk because of water stress, because of heat stress. We've been primarily answering questions in terms of things like row crop agriculture, but when we look at specialty crops, um, some of our perennial crops, changes in winter conditions are also very important for those frost risk in the spring that can lead to complete loss of fruit crops for a given year. In order for sort of agriculture to maintain that portion of the economy, there are incentives for, you know, mechanisms to spread out the risk, diversifying crops, changing some of the crops that have traditionally been planted so that farmers can adapt and can continue to to be profitable. But there are definitely mechanisms by which I think agriculture will continue to be profitable in Indiana and it will still be essentially the same portion of the economy. Mm -hmm.
1: Are you hopeful for the future of Indiana's agriculture in the face of climate change and changing water resources?
5: I think the agricultural systems we have now have to undergo a fairly major change, but I think technology is pushing us that way as well. Historically, it has been pushing us towards ever bigger fields, more uniform crops, but now with smart technologies, we are getting to the point where you can automate more diversification into a system so you can still have a healthier, more diversified farm with fewer farmers, you have more technology doing that. And that makes it more robust, right? Right now, if you have a big drought and all we're planting is corn and soybean, It's all affected kind of the same way, but if you have a variety of crops planted that are harvested at different times, have different water needs, demands, those kinds of things, that helps not only maintain the agricultural productivity but also can help maintain the ecosystems.
4: Overall, I'm an optimistic person. You know, I have been in the room with meetings with what we call the early adopters right and the farmers who are truly passionate about their land and their legacy and are experimenting with new methods and so i I think there's a lot of room for adaptation i think we know a lot about what we need to do we're still learning more about how to put that into practice we know in a theoretical sense and i think we have people who are willing to work on that
0: Water is vital for bringing food and beverages to our tables, which means it is also an essential part of Indiana's economy and quality of life. Follow along this season of the Collective Tap as we dip further into the details of this important aspect of water use. In part two of this episode, we will look closer at how farming in Indiana is changing. Later in the season, we talk about livestock, commercial food, and beverage production, and the local beer and spirit scene. The Collective Tap is a project of the White River Alliance, a 501c3 organization located in Indianapolis, Indiana. We are an alliance of diverse interests and organizations that work together to steward the river and its watershed. It is made possible with generous funding from the Nina Mason-Polium charitable trust. If you want to learn more, visit us at thecollectivetap.com or at thewhiteriveralliance.org. Produced in partnership with Absorb.